Well, good morning. My name is Zach. I am the shepherd for young professionals here at our church. It's great to be here with you all. Um, Sometimes things work out perfectly, even when they're not necessarily communicated to one another and planned. And that happened today as we sang the song Promises, um, in which I I didn't know as I was writing this sermon and and as I looked at the schedule to see we're singing this song, thinking, yes, this works perfectly with what we're going to talk about today. The song we sang, Promises, has this one line that goes like this. It says, you have proven you'll do just what you say. It's a powerful line that we sing with great enthusiasm and worship God and say, this is true about you. You have proven you'll do just what you say. And like many things when it comes to the character of God, it's, it's often something that we can only really find in him and really no one else. We look around and a lot of us have experienced what it's like when someone says something and they don't do it. And I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves, we too have said something, made a promise, and not come through with it. We've heard people say, yes, I will be there for you. I am there at a moment's notice. And then they're not. Or I will definitely not forget that. I will keep it in my mind. And then they forget Or maybe one of the worst of all for all of us is, I can definitely drive you to LAX. And you're looking for an Uber at some point, right? It's it's great betrayal when we hear something, someone makes a promise to us, and then they fail to do so. It creates distrust and is one of the great problems we all face, is hearing something and then it not coming through. And so he's saying today that God, you don't do that. You, you are proven. You do just what you say. And the story we're going to look at today is where this truth and possible conflict come together. You see, we've been following the story of Abram where God has said a lot to him. He has promised a lot to Abram. He has promised a land, a family, a family that would span to great generations and a family that would be blessed And would bless the world. That God was going to work through this family. Bring restoration through them. And a lot of great promises have come to God. To Abram. And yet right now they feel unproven to him. We've been journeying with Abram. And we can kind of sense this creeping feeling of betrayal. Abram has gone and he still has no child. There's no son He's been constantly on the run, moving into a land that then soon became uh, ridden with a famine, forced to leave. He's had to rescue his nephew, Lot. He's had to go to battle. He's exhausted. We've just ended in chapter 14 of him in this great battle and, 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 and rescuing Lot. And we're just watching as, as God has made these promises, and yet they're not coming true for Abram. You can imagine the exhaustion that he's feeling of, I've been following this God. He came to me and told me these great things, and yet they have not come. And so we get to chapter 15. It says this at the beginning. It says, after these things, which is in reference to chapter 14 with Lot. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God comes to Abram and he, and he, he comes with another promise. Abram, your reward will be great. A new promise. God adds to the list of things he has said. 
But then here is Abram's response. Abram says, O Lord, what will you give me? I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram responds to God and pushes back and says, Okay, you're making these promises. Now there's a promise of a great reward. There's a promise of a family and blessing. But look, God, I, I, I don't even have a son at this point. It's kind of key to having a family is, is, is having a son. And what's interesting here in our text is that this is the very first time that we find Abram speaking to God in the story. In Genesis 12, when God first appears to Abram, he tells him all these things. He then tells Abram to leave his land and move to Canaan. Get on the move. And Abram obeys. He simply obeys. And we've watched as Abram has been faithful to what God has said, simply doing without question. But here in chapter 15, we get the very first time that Abram speaks to God in the story. And what his message contains is a sense of doubt and uncertainty. As he looks to God and says, man, you've been promising a lot and I am seeing none of it. I am seeing none of it. And what's interesting here I find is there's two things that stand out. God's reply to Abram and then later how Abram is considered in the eyes of God after this conversation. The first thing is God's reply. It's here in verse uh, 4 through 5. After Abram's pushbacks on, pushbacks on God, it says this, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And then God brought Abram outside and said, Look towards the heavens. Number the stars if you can. And he said, That will be like your offspring. They will be as numerous as the stars. And I want us to take note here of God's response to Abram. His response to Abram's doubt and uncertainty isn't anger. He isn't condemning Abram for having doubt. God's response is gentle and it's hopeful. Okay, Abram, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me promise you again, this, this servant in your household, he's not going to be your heir. You will have a son. In fact, let's go outside. Let's look at the stars, those things I created. And I'm going to show you that, that your family will be as numerous as these stars. God's response to Abram is gentle and it is filled with hope and new promises. And God gives Abram a now a new visual of the stars, of something he could look up to at all time and say, that will be my descendants one day. And then what we find in verse 6 is it says, Then Abram believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And we're going to define righteousness here in just a little bit. But, but what's beautiful right here is that we have watched Abram believe the Lord before. We've watched as he has had faith. He's had faith to leave his home and go on this journey with God. He's had faith in chapter 14 that he didn't need to accept the reward from the, from the king of Sodom because God was going to bring him a reward. He has faith, but here in this story is the first time we hear that, that Abram's belief is now counted as righteousness. 
So within a story of doubt and uncertainty, the faith that is produced from that is worthy of God counting it to him as righteousness. And this is where I want to sit here for a little bit. There's, um, co- there's this concerning trend, if you will, that is happening among uh, followers of Jesus um, that, that maybe you've heard the term of, of deconstruction, deconstructing your faith. And it's particularly uh, rampant among my generation, the millennials, and the, and the generation below us. And what deconstruction is, is it's when, um, and this is a pretty broad term, but it's when someone examines their faith, maybe the things they've been taught from a very young age, and they start to doubt the validity of it, doubt the truthfulness of it. And deconstruction is when you start to ask these questions and feel like there aren't good answers, and that the answer you were taught doesn't fit what you were told, and so you remove that from your life. Now, I've heard this, but that doesn't seem right anymore. I'm going to remove that from my life. It's a deconstructing of maybe a foundation of faith that one once had and then tearing it down. And often, and this is the concern, is often it stays deconstructed. It stays destroyed and in ruin. And it's a concerning trend as we watch people walk away from the faith. Um, uh, I was told after my last sermon, someone came up to me and said, hey, there's actually, good, uh, there's actually good data out there that says for every one person who comes to faith in Jesus, four people leave the faith. So we're watching as, as people are doubting and having uncertainty about life with Jesus, following after him. And what I've noticed is that... Um, a lot of our response as followers of Jesus, as the church, has been to see those who are deconstructing as the enemy. To see those who are having doubts as a problem. And I think what this passage reminds us is that doubt has a place in the church. That asking questions and feeling a little uncertain about things has a place among God's people. God's reply to Abram's doubt is gentle, and it welcomes him back in. You see, as we look at this problem of of deconstruction, um, one solution that seems to be happening but isn't really working is to just be angry at them and to, I just believe. But I think if we were to follow the character of God as we see displayed here in Genesis 15, it would be to say, come on in. Let's ask the questions. Let's work together. Let's be a space for people who are deconstructing and who have doubts and uncertainties about their faith. Because if they can't do it here, it's going to happen somewhere else and it's probably going to stay in ruin. So we as the church, as people of God, we've got to be better at at giving people the space and to be gentle with them, to work through the questions. Because here's one of the things about deconstruction that I think can be helpful. Is that often there are things that we do need to reconsider. There are things that maybe some of us were taught that maybe don't fit. So something that can be helpful about deconstruction is, is the rebuilding process is that as long as we stay on the foundation of Jesus, 
There may be rebuilding. There may be uh, some things that we need to tweak and need to change. And the building might look different than it once did. But if it's on the foundation of Jesus, that's okay. And so our calling is to bring people in who are doubting and say, we've got a space for you. Let's work with you and let's, let's reshape this. And maybe it's going to look different than the faith you had as a kid. And that's okay. Faith is growing. It moves. And sometimes we need a little bit of reconstruction in it. And so we watch as God here gently brings Abram back in, does not push him away, is not angry at him for questioning, but gives him hope once again and lets him have space for doubt and questions. God is bigger than doubt and uncertainty. He can handle it. He is not afraid of it, and neither should we. And so uh, here in this piece of chat in verse 6, we see a faith that is produced out of uncertainty. And the beauty of Abram's story here is that there's the faith from chapter 12, if you will, that just obeys and listens. And just, God, you've told me to do it. I'm going to go do it. And that is good faith. But also faith that comes from questions and uncertainty that has to wrestle with it and comes out at the end still as faith and belief. That is good faith as well. In fact, here it is righteous faith. It is counted to Abram as righteousness. Well, what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean for something to be counted as righteousness? Um, we could jump to the New Testament uh, and maybe later this week you could spend some time in Romans 4 and James chapter 2 as they both use the example of Abram's faith here in Genesis 15 to build a whole argument. I would encourage you to spend some time in those passages. But I want to look at this understanding of righteousness in the Old Testament. Okay, that's where we're at. We're in Genesis. We're in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. It's my favorite. And so I want us to think about what would this have meant to those living in the time of Abram and after in the Old Testament. Well, what's interesting is when we read um, when we read our Old Testament and we see the word righteousness pop up, the, the Hebrew there is sadikah, when we see it pop up, every time except here, it is in reference to something someone has done. Okay, So as righteousness is related to people, it is you, it is. Often, in fact, really every time, connected to something they are doing. You do righteousness, okay? Your actions are what is considered righteousness in the Old Testament. And when we look at the the full picture of the Old Testament, we see, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but we see that, that God has chosen a people, the Israelites, to be his people, and that as a response to being his people graciously rescued from slavery, called to be his own, that their response is to live righteously, to follow after the character of God. And and that's what we find in all those rules of Leviticus and Numbers, our favorite books of the Bible that we love to read. All that there is to set them up for good examples of righteousness. And so what often happens is we look in the Old Testament, we see work, we see righteousness together, And then I think what's happened is we've, somewhere along the way, have created this this weird dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And we see it like this, and this is, this is a bad caricature, okay? So know that. I don't think any of us would say this, but we might think of it in this way. As we look at the Old Testament, we see uh, it seems that God is always wanting people to do stuff, to do works. He's always worried about their behavior. He's really concerned about how they're living, their morals. And it seems that in the Old Testament, God is all about the stuff we do. And then when we get to the New Testament, and again, this is a caricature, we get to the New Testament, suddenly God is all about grace, okay? He was all about works, and then grace is his new thing now, right? So Jesus shows up, he's loving. Uh, To accept Jesus, you just have to have faith. It's gracious, it's wonderful. It's different because in the Old Testament, God wanted them to do works. That's a bad, bad picture of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has always been gracious. And he has always expected that the faith, our response to him, is faith that is alive and active and producing good works. Read James chapter 2. And so those two things work together. And that's why actually the story of Abraham is so important. Because in the Old Testament, there is a concern about what the Israelites are doing, displaying righteousness. But there's also the story of Abram believing and it being accounted to him as righteousness, that his belief is as equal as the works and being counted as right before God. It's righteousness. And it's important those two work together. That for the Israelites, when we read the prophets, and, and the prophets are going against you know, Israel's way of life, is that deeply tied to the ways in which they are disobeying God, deeply tied to the ways in which they aren't acting righteous, is because they've lost faith in God. You'll see over and over again, the accusations against them are, you're you're not living righteous, but also you're following false idols and you're not even worshiping God. The two are together. That faith, faith in God, is meant to produce our righteousness, produce the ways in which we live and do good works. In the story of Abram, we find that his belief in God is also counted and equal to that righteousness, that this is how the two work together. And we see that balance here. So God has always been gracious because we see here in the story of Abram, someone who did nothing, to, to deserve God showing up to his house and saying, leave, I'm going to bless you and your family. Abram, Abram wasn't special in that way. But God came to him out of grace and love for him and set him on this path. God's grace and his love work together with works and righteousness. And so it would be great for Abram and maybe for us if the story ended here. Abram believing, it's, it, all, it all goes well. He's counted as righteousness. What a wonderful story. We wrap up and we move on with Abram. But then what we find is that Abram's belief that is counted as righteousness, that just came after doubt, is now sandwiched by another story of doubt with Abram. Because here's what we find in verse 7. Um, And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, so now God is now being like, okay, we've worked through the situation about your doubt and you having a son. Abram believes that, counted him as righteousness. Now God is bringing up the next part of the covenant. You're going to have a land to possess. 
But then Abram says, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So again, Abram questions and isn't sure about how God is going to do this. There's a little bit of uncertainty yet again, sandwiched here. And then here's what God says. He says to Abram, he says, bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, turtle dove, and young pigeons. Okay, bring me these animals. And Abram does so, and then he cuts them in half, lays them uh, each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds, okay? So we're given this kind of odd story, okay? This odd picture here of, of God's re- response to Abram's doubt again is, okay, I'm going to make a, a, a symbol, a symbolic act with you, okay? Go get a heifer, go get a ram, go get a goat, go get these birds, And what's interesting here is Abram seems to know exactly what God is about to do with him because Abram, after he gets these animals, cuts them in half and puts them and doesn't cut some of them. And it's like he knows exactly what what is about to happen. We're going to examine what might be happening here because it's not something we normally do. Um, But God is essentially putting before him a symbolic act of promise. Um, my wife and I, Alexa, when we, I don't, know, I don't know when we started this, but it was early on in our relationship, we, we would make pinky promises um, to each other, but, and I don't know where this came from, but instead of using pinkies like you would in a pinky promise, we would use our thumbs, and I don't know where that came from, it's, it just became a weird thing to be like, pinky promise, and we'd hold our thumb, and then if that other person was telling the truth, they'd put out their thumb, and we'd make a pinky promise. And um, it's a weird thing that we started doing. And it would just be simple stuff, right? Like, for example, I, I am so bad at picking out movies and enjoying movies and just being able to just watch whatever. And my wife can just pick out any movie and just be happy with it. And, and so normally our Friday nights, when it's time to relax and watch a movie, we'll be flipping through every streaming service possible and I'm not satisfied by anything that, that is there. <laughs> and eventually she, I'll get tired of it. And she'll be like, well, can we watch this movie? I'll be like, sure, let's do it. She'll be like, are you sure that's okay? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Do you pinky promise you're okay if we watch this movie? And usually I'll be like, no, I, I don't really want to watch it. And so I won't initiate the pinky promise because if I were to, that would be a lie, right? And so we do this with little things all throughout the day and, and just being able to say, like, if, if one person says something, be like, you pinky promise? And, and it's built on this foundation. And the thing with our pinky promise, as silly and ridiculous as it is, is that if one of us were to ever lie doing the sacred <laughs> pinky promise, it would ruin the whole system, Right? If I were to say, yeah, we can, we can watch that movie, and, and I'm lying in my heart, like, I do not want to watch 27 Dresses. I'm not here for this, right? And if I lie about it, but I do the pinky promise, the whole system is gone. Because now we can never trust that the other person is telling the truth because one of us lied, right? And so, thankfully, to this day, none of us have lied in the sacred pinky promise, What God is about to do with Abram here is make a very powerful promise with him. One that is tied to something that is a a ritual that symbolizes something deep and powerful. Definitely more powerful than a pinky promise. And so in this story here, we get these, these animals. 
Okay. And there's a couple of possible interpretations for what's happening here. If you're really intrigued by what they could be, come talk to me. But I think this is the, the best interpretation with what we've got in the text and what we know about the world of the Old Testament. Remember, this is an ancient book, right? And so, so in the story, Abram gets these animals and somehow he instinctively knows to cut them in half, okay? And then later in the story, um, the sun goes down. Abram falls asleep. He's put into a deep sleep. And the Lord comes to him and gives him this vision of the exodus, of Abram's descendants being sojourners in a land, servants there for about 400 years. But then God is going to rescue them and bring them into the promised land. Okay? So we see more promises from God. All this tied up here. And then in verse 17, it said, When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. And then verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So something about this act here with the animals and the passing through is a reflection of a covenant. And here's what we think this means. And this is based on what we know of the, the ancient world of the Bible and based on a, a passage in Jeremiah 34. You could, you could go there if you'd like and see um, this same thing happening with a little bit of interpretation for us. So here's what would happen. You would want to make a promise with someone, a covenant with someone. And usually what would happen is this is usually about war, right? You, you, you're making a promise with another king about how you're not going to go on each other's land or you're not going to fight again or, or you're going to not touch that person's well or the, the animals or whatever. You would make this covenant in which you would bring these animals just like we have here in the story. And you would cut them in half. And I, it's kind of gross to us. And you would put them on the separate sides of each other. So like this aisleway right here. You put them on their separate sides. And normally you would dig a ditch. And so the blood of the animals would start pooling into the ditch. Again, kind of gross. But it's a great visual here. Because what would happen is the two parties who are making a promise. One party would pass through the ditch. Okay. They'd walk through it as the gross blood of the animals is there, probably getting on their feet, getting on their, their tunic. And they would pass through, and they would say something along the lines of, if I do not fulfill my side of the covenant, if I do not keep my promise, you can do to me what we have done to these animals. Then okay. the second party would go through and make the same promise. And it was this powerful visual of the sanctity of what they were promising. That we will not violate this covenant. Because if we do, death is the inevitable outcome of this. You can kill me because I have failed to do this. Thankfully, my wife and I's pinky promises don't have death as the, uh, as the consequence. But what we see here in this story is that God is making a powerful promise with Abram. That as Abram sets these animals out, puts them there, seemingly knowing that this, is, that this is what they're about to do, that this is the symbol that's going to happen, Abram then is put into a deep sleep. He's in a passive state. He can't do anything. And he watches as God makes another promise to him. And he watches in verse 17 as a, two visuals of God's presence, the fiery pot 
and the flaming torch, which are clear allusions to God's um, passing with the people in Egypt with the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. It's God's presence. And he watches as God walks through twice through the covenant. Abram never does. Abram never walks through it. God takes on the absolute power and scariness of this covenant. That God is so serious about his promises that he would take the potential of death on. That if he were to fail, he says to, you know, it's essentially saying to Abram, this is what can happen to me if, if this fails. I can die. It's a powerful visual of God. We see here a picture of God in which, if we were really to ask ourselves, why? Why would God need to make promises with us? Who are we that deserve him to promise anything? Can he just do whatever he wants? And if it goes his way, that's great. He's God. But he steps into our lives, into the life of human beings, and makes promises to them. Promises so secure and powerful that death is on the line. And as we look forward into the New Testament... And we know the story of the old in which God's people constantly fail their side of the covenant. They don't live righteously. They fail to be a blessing to the nations. And it seems as though God's promises are not coming true. That the, what the point of Abram's family was to be just doesn't seem like it at the end of the Old Testament. And so in the New Testament, we arrive to Jesus, God incarnate, coming down to fulfill all of the promises, to be a blessing to the nation, to welcome all into God's family, Jew and Gentile alike. And that because of our failure, because of our inability to be righteous, because of sin, the seriousness of God's covenant promises come to fold. As Jesus is placed on a cross and dies. As the God who makes promises, the God who steps into our lives, the God who is so serious about what he says, dies on our behalf. And then three days later, he rises to new life and to victory. And he invites us into that life. And now he counts all of us as righteous because of his son. Because of his fulfillment of the covenant. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up here. And um, if there's some other shepherds here in the room, elders, if you guys would mind lining up over here to, to pray with people. I imagine that, that, that there are some of you in this room um, who follow Jesus, but maybe you're in a season of doubt. Maybe you are in a season of deconstructing your faith. And if that's you, I want you to know that there is a space for you here. And the people that are up here, myself included, 
would love to pray for you, love to come alongside of you and not just make it a one Sunday thing, but to really be a part of a journey of caring for you and asking the tough questions and to move into a space to which we can say, Hey, there, there's room for doubt. And even a faith that has moments of doubt and anxiety is still counted as righteous. And maybe you're here in the room and all this idea of falling after Jesus seems new. This idea of a God who keeps promises when no one else in our life can seems impossible. I want you to see that Jesus is here to welcome you in. The God who died for our sins, the God who who raised to new life, is here and inviting you into that, into new life, to new creation. That when God says things about his son, about how his son is the only way to him, we can trust him. That when God says he loves you, we can know for certain that is real. When God says that nothing can separate us from him, We know that that promise stands true because this is the God that we worship and serve and know. The God who has stepped into our life, into our world to make promises to us. He has said exactly what he said and has done exactly what he says. And we can be in relationship with that God. He invites all of us into that. Invites you wherever you are in your journey of faith, whether it's just about to start, whether it's long down the road, maybe things are great, maybe you're deconstructing, wherever you are, God has promises, he's fulfilled them, he loves you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for just stepping into our lives. for graciously coming after us, for graciously coming alongside Abram and all the people in these stories who you work through despite all of their flaws and sin and failures and doubt and worries. God, you are so much bigger than all of that. Lord, you do exactly as you say. And Lord, we know that one of the things that you have established is that there is a path to you. That there is a way to new life. There's a way to righteousness. To being in your family and loved by you. There is a way to salvation, to resurrection. And you have fulfilled that all in your son, Jesus. So I pray for the people in this room who don't know, don't know your son just yet. Lord, I pray that today could be an opportunity to meet him. Be a day to opportunity to to believe and place faith in Jesus. And for those that do, Lord, I just, I pray for the space to have questions. And Lord, even the space to be excited and celebrate that you keep your promises. Father, we love you. And it's your name that we pray. Amen.